Take your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Tonight I will speak on this thought, the champion of love. Uh, quickly, I do want to clarify two things. First of all, I believe in the bulletin. Maybe we uh, have a time that's not correct. I believe the Awana Grand Prix, Brother Jim Yonassa Wright, starts at noon. And that's lunch, and then Brother Brian Huffer told me that they'll begin racing at about 1. And so don't be there at 2, because if so, you're late. <laughs> uh, and then secondly, the youth meeting tonight is for those parents and teenagers who were unable to make the meeting last Wednesday. Maybe the cat's out of the bag now, but we're going to Pensacola to go to youth camp this year. And so we're meeting about that, trying to get prepared for that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tonight. I just want to quickly speak to you. We will not be long at all. But I want to quickly speak to you about a topic that I think will help you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Bible says, starting in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, for me it's a page flip, uh, but we're going to move to verse 20. The Bible continues to say, but now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, but by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end when he shall be have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray tonight that you would specifically bless this time. And Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and you would open our ears. And Lord, yes, even open our eyes to what the Bible is saying. Father, I just simply want to glorify you tonight. And Lord, I want to brag on you just a little bit. So please allow your spirit to move and please allow it to guide me. I pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Have you ever noticed as time goes on, men's word gets a little more feeble? I know it seems like somebody makes you a promise. You have to go check out whether that promise is actually true or not. Handshakes don't quite mean what they used to. I mean, this day and age, athletes make promises, uh, 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 celebrities make promises with no intent of delivering on them. 
Man, politicians are elected by saying some of the greatest things in the world, and yet they never had an intention at all of doing anything like that. There was a man by the name of Hollywood Joe Namath, who in the days leading up to Super Bowl III, guaranteed a victory over the NFL champions, the Indianapolis Colts. Now, see, this was strange at the time because uh, Hollywood Joe Namath's Jets were 18-point underdogs. And all the odds makers made them the underdog. And so Joe Namath stepping up and saying, I don't only think we'll win, I guarantee a win. That was a little bit strange. As time went on and the Super Bowl was played, in fact, Mr. Hollywood Joe Namath delivered on his promise. They did win. And they didn't win by 18 points. They didn't lose by 18 points, but they did win the game, 16-7. to 7. Joe Namath was awarded the MVP for his great game and his great play. And his word that he promised before the event ever took place came to pass. But you know what? I, I can think of just a few recent times when athletes' words have not come to pass. I don't know if you recall, but when LeBron had his big uh, televised decision, and he was a free agent for the first time in his career, and he was at that time a Cleveland Cavalier, and I believe he was sitting in front of a, a, a news anchor there, and they began to ask him where he was going to uh, play ball. He said, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach. And many of us can recall him saying that. And then as the time went on, uh, they had a big celebration. Him and the big three, Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh were all there, and they were uh, almost like a parade that they had gotten LeBron James to come to Miami. And they put microphones in their hands, which was a terrible idea at the time. And LeBron sat there with that microphone in hand and throngs of fans all up in the stands. And he says, oh, we're not going to win just one championship, not two, not three, not four, not five. <laughs> and everybody just erupted in applause. Well, if you're not a Miami fan, you kind of got angry at that. Five championships, you've never won one. Now, it's so funny because that just happened to be the year that the Mavericks beat him. Abraham Miller, God is not dead. He is alive and well, my friend. The Mavericks shut old LeBron up that year. But he was promising championship after championship, and he couldn't deliver on his promise. I was in North Carolina two years ago. Now, this was uh, Cam Newton's sophomore campaign. He had just really shook the NFL up with his talents. Uh, his rookie year, he was doing a tremendous job. Every fantasy league had him going as the top-rated quarterback because he could run for yardage, pass for yardage, and he would throw for three and run for three in the same game. He's just, he really did a great job his rookie year. And I remember being in North Carolina his sophomore year during the time they're getting all the football started up. And I remember uh, my a grandfather-in-law handing me a piece of paper, and he says, you see right there, Andrew? The Carolina Panthers put a full-page ad in that paper, and every single one of them signed it with pen ink saying that they would win the Super Bowl this year. They went on to do terribly, not even making the playoffs. Now, this was two years ago, not last year when they were actually pretty good. You know, people's word falls flat all the time. 
But I'm here to tell you there was one by the name of Jesus Christ who made a whole lot of promises and came up with a whole lot of delivery. Tonight I just simply want to talk about the three characteristics about my champion of love. First of all, and probably the most beautiful and the most uh, special to me is that he favored the fallen. He favored the fallen. You see, when you hear the term champion of love, you often, uh, I don't know about you, but I do, I, I think of a, 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 a victor, I think of a, a champion, someone who was victorious and a winner, and I almost imagine him in tremendous strength and tremendous might. But really, oftentimes, the word that's overlooked is love. She did not come to defeat anyone. He came to love. And he came to demonstrate that love on the cross of Calvary. And I don't quite understand why he would do that for me, to be very honest. Because I know that I'm not near as good as some of the men I read in the Bible. I read of David and how he was just a young man but exhibited tremendous amounts of faith in God and how he was able to walk down in the valley uh, where nobody else was willing to go and he was able to stand before a giant with just a sling and a stone and he was able to have faith in God and he says, uh, you're going to shut your mouth, Goliath. And he would take that stone and he took that sling and with faith in God saying, somebody needs to stand up for the God of Israel. He took it that day and slew the giant and I read about him and then I look in Psalm chapter 51 and how he says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I say, David, you're such a much better person than I am. Then I go on to read in Isaiah how Isaiah was a prophet, a man of God, a preacher, if you will. and, And he had a vision, and he stood before God, and he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and when a seraphim uh, stood around the throne of God, uh, crying, holy, 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 Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, a preacher, a prophet of God, a man of God, if you will, bows his face before an almighty God and says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. But Isaiah, I'm not half the man you I go on to read the the, the writings of Paul, and I I think of Paul, the greatest missionary, no doubt, in the entire Word of God, a man who loved God, and God specifically had a plan to usher the gospel to the Gentiles and make it available to you and I through the Apostle Paul. And I read of how his relationship with God was all about grace and and love and how he helped people and how he cared for people. And I read about him, and I, I say, Paul, I'm not half the man you are. And he says... I know that in me dwelleth no good thing that is in my flesh. But I'm not half the man these men are. You know what? Christ didn't come for them. He came for me. He didn't come for the high and mighty or even the holy. He didn't come for the ones who could earn their way. He came for me. And my God favored the fallen. See, at the end of the day, if we refer back to our Bibles and we go back to the very beginning, how Adam took the fruit that his wife ate and she encouraged him to eat it and he did. The Bible says sin came upon all mankind because of Adam's decision that day. But honestly, I didn't need any help because I do plenty of sinning on my own to justify a death in hell. 
I'm thankful my God saw me and had compassion on me. He favored me and He loved me. I don't understand it. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Romans chapter 3 tells us, For they have altogether become unprofitable. There is none righteous, no, not one. And sometimes, I don't know how, but we get a little self-righteous and we get a little holy about ourselves and our viewpoint about ourselves becomes, oh yeah, I am good sometimes. But if you read the Bible at all, you understand that when compared to a high and a holy God, we are nothing. And yet the same God who is so high and holy Look down on what the psalmist or the hymn, uh, hymn writer calls a wretch like me and had compassion on me, loved me. Now, I don't understand that. Makes no sense to me, but I am sure thankful that my God favored the fallen. First John chapter 4 verse 9 says this, In this was manifested the love of God toward us because God sent His Son, His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. The Bible says, Greater love hath no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for a friend. When Jesus Christ came to this earth, He exhibited the most powerful, most perfect, most absolute love that's ever been demonstrated on this planet. I explained to the teenagers the other night, don't be so free with giving out your love to people. You know, you you have a boyfriend, you have a girlfriend, that's fine, but don't be so ready to tell someone you love them. I said, don't protect it, don't hoard it as a thing that is untouchable, but how about we define it biblically? I told my teenagers, you know when I decided I would tell someone I loved them? When I felt I could die for them. See, when John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, it was not just words. But he put those words and those emotions into an action by coming to this earth and submitting himself to, 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 to the hands of man and dying on a cross for you and I. Well, it's not an empty love, but he truly saw us and came and died for us. I'm thankful for it, and I'm thankful he's my champion of love. Not only did he favor the fallen, but secondly, I want you to notice, he fought the fight. He fought the fight. Can I say here, it was not his to fight. He fought for you, and he fought for me. And yet it was our battle to lose. You see, Adam made a decision that day. God did not create anything in this world imperfect. We chose to make it imperfect. And we, being sinful people, being led away by the lusts of our flesh, Adam took the fruit, and each and every day you and I do something opposed to God's word and God's commandments in our life. You know what that is? That is us choosing sin. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. 
The reason we die is because we sin. And not only does it say that it is death, but truly death and hell are our penalty for our sin. Oh, it takes just a young child to understand this premise. When you do something wrong, you have a consequence. And our God, being such a holy and righteous God, had to send us to a place called hell. And that's what we deserved, is it not? That's exactly what each and every one of us deserved. I'm I'm afraid to say sometimes I think we kind of whitewash our sin a little bit. We make it look a little less bad. I know that's what our culture is trying to do. Oh, it... You know, it's not that big a deal. If you could save some money with rent by just moving in with this person you're not married to, you know, financial times are so hard, it's no problem. Oh, it's not that big a deal. You should love who you want to love. It's not that big a deal. If you feel an emotion to the same gender, you ought to act on that emotion. It's not that big a deal. In our culture, each and every day, whitewashes and paints sin as not being that bad. I'm just afraid it's seeped over into Christianity where we, oh, just a little drink here and there wouldn't be that big a deal. I mean, after all, I've had a really long day at work and and this week has really been draining on me. You don't understand. It's not that big a deal if I I take matters into my own hands and and, and comfort my body with the, the pleasure that it desires. No, we stand there with our paintbrush just whitewashing our sin, all the while forgetting about the battle that our Savior had to fight. It was our sin that hung him there. But we, like Barabbas, should have been the ones there. Could you imagine the exhilaration, the the freedom that Barabbas must have felt that day? as he was the one that was to die on that cross. I couldn't imagine being Barabbas, being in that prison cell, not knowing uh, when they're going to come get me, not knowing uh, how painful the the crucifixion would eventually be, not knowing uh, how how much agony I would endure, not knowing the shame and the, the reproach that I would bear as people mocked me and people jeered me and people viewed me up on that cross seeing the results of the decisions I've made. I couldn't imagine being Barabbas. Especially when that jailer comes in and he says, Barabbas, you're free to go. Barabbas says, what? Did some new evidence pop up in my case that exonerated me? No, Barabbas, you're still guilty. But there's one who took your place. The fact of the matter tonight, Christian, is you're still guilty. And that was still your cross that you should have been hanging on. And yes, even that was your penalty that you should have been serving in hell for eternity. But Jesus Christ, the precious Lamb of God, was slain before the foundation of the world, came to die for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says... For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. First Peter tells us, who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree. 
Isaiah chapter 53 says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and, and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him smitten and stricken of God. Oh, friend, Jesus fought our battle. He fought the fight that each and every one of us should have faced. And yet he says, you're free to go. In the 17th century, Oliver Cromwell was the Lord Protector of England. And he had sentenced a soldier to be shot that night for crimes that he had committed. And as the evening curfew bell was to ring, that man was to be shot at the first sound of it. They proceed to usher the man out to the place where the execution was to take place. Everybody's ready. Everybody's waiting on the sound of the bell. Time goes on and there's no sound of the bell. The curfew bell did not ring that evening. Upon further investigation, what had happened was the soldier's fiance had climbed up in that bell tower and had wrapped herself around the bell clanker so that when the bell was to act, she would be the one that felt the pain and felt the hurt, but the sound would never come so that man would not be executed. Mr. Cromwell uh, brought the fiancé in to ask her and to punish her for her uh, deeds that she had done, and, and he saw the bruises and the blood on her hands. From grasping the clanker in that bell, from, from, from making sure it made no sound that her fiancé would not be killed, Mr. Cromwell said, your lover shall live because of your sacrifice. Curfew shall not ring tonight. You see, I don't know when your bell was going to ring, but it was. And exactly what Jesus Christ did is he wrapped himself around the cross. And he died in our place. And God now can look at us and say, come on in. I'm thankful he's my champion of love. Because he fought my fight that I couldn't have won. Not only did he do that, but finally, we're almost done. He finished the foretelling. He finished it. Look in verse number four. Paul is describing what the gospel is. He says, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Verse number four says, and that he was buried that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Several times throughout the ministry of Christ, he would foretell his eventual death and resurrection. Mark chapter 8, verse 31 says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Mark chapter 9 verse 31 goes on to say the exact same thing. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. After that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Now this is Jesus talking. Matthew chapter 16 verse 21 says the same thing. Jesus would have to die by the hands of sinful men And he would rise again on the third day. And he's teaching this to his disciples. 
Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 through 19 goes on to say that Jesus would die, be buried, and rise again on the third day. And Jesus called what would eventually happen. You know, Mr. Joe Namath could have been wrong. We've all seen the ball bounce the wrong way. We've all seen uh, sports and games. They, it just so happens the day you think you've got them figured out, they do exactly what the opposite you think is going to happen. Ask the Denver Broncos of this year. It was really by chance that Mr. Namath was correct. I'm sure they had a great game plan, but to think the Colts did not would be crazy. You know, LeBron sat there and with his mouth probably feeling like he inserted his foot that day, making bold proclamations of the future. But at best, he was just guessing. No, even the Carolina Panthers, who each and every single one of them on the team took a pen and signed their name to a a, a piece of paper saying, we will eventually win the Super Bowl this year. Oh, they're just guessing. And at best, it was just a hope. You see, that's the difference between my Lord and everyone else. It's because he doesn't hope, he knows. And when he made the promise that he would die and be buried and rise again three days later, he had the power to deliver on that promise. I'm thankful my Lord is the champion of love. You know, we're not the only religion that believes their Savior or their prophet has risen. I was reading an article just today how one religion believes that they saw their resurrected prophet. And the reason was because he was there to assure them that polygamy was true and that it was correct. And all the people there in that congregation saw him. I'm thankful my Lord didn't rise to give me a get-out-of-the-law-of-your-country free card. I'm thankful my Lord didn't arise just to show me, just to encourage me, oh, keep doing what you're doing. But when my Savior rose from the dead, He was saying, I have all power. And the one battle that nobody will ever win, I just won. And the one thing that nobody will ever defeat in life... I just defeated. I am the, the, the victor. I am the champion. I am the one who has the keys to death and hell. I am the one who was uh, dead but is alive forevermore. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the precious Lamb of God was slain, but I'm thankful to say tonight, He rose. He rose for you, and He arose for me. You see... Christ was not the only one to die for a noble cause, but he was the only one to ever rise for one. And I'm thankful he's my champion. There was a young boy who was written about in a book called Written in Blood. This young boy had had a disease two years prior to the event that was written about. And basically, his sister contracted the same exact disease that he had just uh, gained victory over. 
the doctor said what was going to have to take place if the little girl was to live was that somebody would have to give blood to her who had already beaten the disease. The little boy was a perfect candidate. They both had extremely rare types of blood, and they, the little boy had already defeated the disease. And so they began to ask the boy, would you be willing to give your blood for your sister? The little boy hesitantly thought for just a moment, and then he said, I will do that. So they began to began the process of giving the blood of the little boy to the system of the little girl. And the little boy looked over at the sister, and they made eye contact for one brief moment, and, and he began to smile at her. As time went on, the, 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 the effects of the process were taking place. The blood was coming from the little boy into the little girl. And the little boy just sat there quietly, kind of uh, wondering what was going on. He, after some time passed, he looked at the doctor and he said, Sir, when am I going to die? And the doctor said, Son, you're not going to die. See, the little boy thought the whole time he was giving his life for his sister. And in that moment when he hesitantly chose to give his blood, he chose to give his life. See, I'm reminded of in the Garden of Gethsemane. As our Lord faced probably the toughest decision anyone's ever faced in all of history. How his divinity and his humanity began to, to, to battle each other. And his desire was not to face the pain and not to face the shame and and not to face the cross. But his divinity was, Lord, your will be done. And that night he prayed to his father and said, Lord, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. The father said, there is no other way. And the son said, nevertheless, my will, but thy will be done. At that moment, he decided to die for the sins of all mankind. He was our Savior. Better yet, he was our champion of love. 